My guest today is one of the founding heroes of impact investing in Australia. Michael Trail led a pioneering finance deal in 2009, which brought out the assets of the struggling childcare company ABC Learning. He revived the business as Good Start Early Learning, which remains Australia's biggest childcare centre group and a foundational story of impact investing in Australia. Since then, the sector's grown and evolved, and last year the federal government set up a special task force to make recommendations about what they can do to help nurture and grow impact investing. And in their wisdom, they made Michael the chair. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investing decisions can have an impact. Now, the task force published an interim report at the end of 2019 and final recommendations were due to be released in the middle of 2020. But COVID-19 put a spanner in the works and the report's been delayed. So with lots of my listeners eager to hear about progress, I thought now would be a great time to invite Michael onto the show. As usual, all the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And before we jump in, I wanted to let you know that the next few episodes of the podcast are being supported by RIA. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They have over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. They're the largest network of people and organisations engaged in responsible, ethical and impact investing across Australia and New Zealand. They do great work and it's a pleasure to help spread the word on how they're supporting the industry. RIA's been involved with the podcast before. You may remember past episodes with Simon O'Connor, who is the CEO of RIA and a powerful advocate for building a healthier society, environment and economy. Head on over to responsibleinvestment.org to find out all about it. All right, let's get on with the show. Here's my chat with Michael Trail. Here we go. Michael Trail, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to finally have a chat. My pleasure, John. Great to be with you. Now, look, the most challenging part of today will be to stay focused. I have so many avenues I'd like to explore with you, but I'm going to try and focus on the most current project you're working on. That's chairing the federal government's task force on social impact investing. You're, uh, you're well qualified for the task. You've been a presence in the Australian impact uh, ecosystem right from the start, but right now, we're in the midst of a global health pandemic and suddenly the social impact of our investments are looking more important than ever. But in a practical sense, how has the crisis impacted uh, the work of the task force? Thanks, John. No, look, it has been challenging, as you're probably uh, aware. The interim report of the task force was uh, produced and was public in January of this year with the intent to produce a final report in June. So we were put on hold as as COVID intervened and we've been advised that we're about to get a high quality team from Prime Minister and Cabinet who'd been supporting us back to us fairly shortly with a revised date for submission of the final report. I have to say we've not been letting the grass grow. COVID is both an extraordinary once in multi-generation challenge but with an impact investing hat on and task force hat on. There are also opportunities out of that. I think there's a broad recognition in the community that we need to be thinking about things a little differently. And I think it's a measure 
of the enthusiasm and passion of my fellow expert advisors on the task force that we've met frequently and informally in a period that has been is one of kind of hibernation and in inverted commas but we do know that the interim report has got a very positive response in the interim report flagged a series of things both about the opportunity we characterized and this was controversial in some quarters but i think fair we characterized the industry as it's structured as being one of great opportunity but in many sense a cottage industry and a cottage industry in the sense that it lacked the depth of intermediaries there wasn't the understanding at the kind of level of depth in terms of the returns both financial and social that would drive it to the scale that we're all believers that it has the opportunity uh, to get to. So as we recalibrate and reconvene, we've, we're very enthusiastic about getting on the front foot and putting into place the final recommendations. I think it's a positive thing that the government convened the task force. That's a strong indication of their active interest in learning about ways that the Commonwealth in partnership with the states can actually be a proactive player, player in enabling growth in the market. Okay, and in terms of opportunities then, do you think that, that COVID-19 has boosted investors' appetite for, for measuring impacts beyond just the financial metrics? I think it very clearly has. I think there's a recognition, A, that there needs to be more done, that you've got an unemployment rate that's already ticking up and likely to grow, uh, while the government's done a series of things that I think in the circumstances are appropriate. The, the second part of the equation is that people both with an impact investing and philanthropy hat on are really keen to commit funding that they know is necessary, but they really want to see that it's driving outcomes and driving results. And one of the cores of the impact investing task force was in the feedback we had from an extensive consultative process. The good news was there are a bunch of existing impact investors who said, we like what we've done. We've had a series of exposures that for the most part have worked, but we want to see more opportunities and we want to see more clarity and more granularity about what's working about what returns we can get and we by returns we mean both understanding of the financial returns but a granular description of what social impact is being uh, driven so you know i think that's a i think that's a very strong set of things to work with yeah well we all know the challenges of of measuring social impact i think on the environmental side of impact investing the the metrics are a little bit clearer and i'm sure those are elements that you've dealt with, but sort of on a more practical perspective, you know, who are you talking to and where's the data coming from with the, the work of the task force? Yeah, the question of data integrity is a big challenge. So let me answer your question in two parts, John. One is that certainly in my experience, as you implied in the question, one of the reasons the green bond market has accelerated is I think there are clearer metrics and clearly more clearly understood pricing mechanisms. That has been more challenging in the social impact investing space, so social benefit bonds. My own experience uh, in the setup of Good Start was an explicit focus around measures of quality, measures of supporting communities of disadvantage. That's quite variable case to case. It's more complicated. I describe it as a three-dimensional problem in the social purpose world, uh, whereas in the business world, that's kind of a two-dimensional issue. You can look at P&L and margins and cash flow and so on. Um, so it's, it's definitely more challenging and it's more challenging in social impact space. The second part of it is that I think government as a player, as, a, as an enabler, can actually be much more constructively involved in this. And we flagged this in the interim report at the task force. It's very clear, both in our work with government, that 
one of the challenges to be addressed is better quality sharing of data. That's not just across departments. It's also as between the Commonwealth government and the states in making sure that we've got data integrity and the kind of shared data that would lend itself to the quality outcomes when we're putting social impact investing in place. So uh, we've already flagged and there's a set of things in the interim report that I have no doubt we'll be following up on in more depth and more detail about the challenge of data collection, data integrity uh, as a fundamental underpinning of the outcome measurement that will drive growth in social impact investing. And just to try and get a flavour of, of the work you've done since the interim report came out, are there any sort of key shifts or, or key trends you've noticed that you can give us a, uh, a hint about, that we can get a bit of a, an early run on, on the direction you're taking? Yeah, one positive thing, which has been the stuff we stay plugged into a global network of philanthropy and impact investors, I think as you'd hope and expect that in these very challenging times, most major philanthropic foundations and impacted investors are recognising that they need to step up, they need to do more. So while there might have been some concern that either giving or investing levels would decline as a reflection of some of the challenges in global markets, uh, there's no evidence that that's been the case. I think the second thing is that we, as we also mentioned in the interim report, have looked pretty closely at offshore precedents and in particular the UK where Sir Ron Cohen did initial work on uh, social finance, social impact investing. There was a task force there in 2001. Out of that experience, you can point to a number of high quality organisations like Big Society Capital, uh, like Bridges, which now manages a broad pool of a billion pounds in impact investing funds that started as a, a, a much smaller 20 million pound government matched social enterprise fund uh, social Finance UK. So the legacy of that is a series of high quality intermediaries where there's been partnership funding from government and the private sector and philanthropic foundations. And the common denominator have been what are now, you know, quite enduring institutions with a good track record uh, where they've attracted and retained really high quality people who come from eclectic backgrounds out of the, not just the business world, but also the social purpose world. So those skills of metrics of measurement and accountability and high quality service delivery have knitted together. And so we flagged that there's real scope to look at some of those precedents out of the UK. Uh, is there an Australian capacity to do something equivalent to a big society capital and how and on what most basis you might think about doing that and capitalising that. That's certainly been, been an area of focus for us, which was flagged in the interim report. Again, looking at the UK, there's been a range of social benefit bonds that have been undertaken here. The experience in the UK provides some line of sight as to how they can be converted to a greater, more repeatable scale with uh, the development of outcomes funds. So an outcome fund is really based on the design principle of a social benefit. So it's an outcome payment from government based on delivery of a key performance indicator, key social performance indicator, which has attached to it a set of economics that enable 
the uh, repayment of a funding contribution with a variable based on performance. And so, again, some interesting precedents out of the UK where they, over the last uh, five to eight years, have really started to experiment and get some early encouraging results. So we think there are opportunities on both of those fronts to do some homework and to make recommendations that are built for purpose in our context in Australia. Yeah, I mean, in that interim report, you broke the the sector into three groups. You mentioned their social impact bonds as being one group. Well, it was a little bit broader than that, but that was essentially it. And then small and medium social enterprises and then the larger social enterprises. I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the nature of those smaller social enterprises and then the larger ones. I mean, the smaller ones is the way you think about helping them grow, assisting them. That's really what this is all about. How applicable are the models used in, in mainstream private equity and in the growth of that industry? You know, you, you worked closely on this stuff with Macquarie. What are the linkages there? It's a really important question, the delineation of the markets. And, and we felt back to your outlining of the three market segments that that was quite important. While there were really important common denominators across each of those three areas around financial performance and social performance metrics, there were some clear differentiators and it goes to the point. So let me start with that important area of emerging and smaller scaled social enterprise. To me, there's no question, just as in the business world, if you don't have a robust model for support, encouragement, mentoring and funding, of early stage social entrepreneurs, then you're really missing an important part of the bigger system because some of those will go on to become very successful and have the capacity to scale and grow. The reality is that particularly in the social impact investing space, that's an area where it can be quite challenging to fund those. So if uh, you'd mentioned my Macquarie background, so in a market that I know pretty well, which is the venture capital private equity market, If you're investing in the higher risk but higher return early stage venture capital market, the expectation would be that if you invest for illustrative purposes in earlier stage ventures and you might do 10 ventures, six or seven of them mightn't make it. You might lose your money, but the expectation would be in the two or three that do, you do extremely well. Some of them might be five or even 10 for one type return. So In aggregate, you can generate a target rate of return that might be 25 to 40% by doing that. And as those businesses grow, they will attract capital from debt or from larger funders of private equity. Now, that parallel doesn't quite hold up in the social impact, social enterprise world. And I think it's really important to understand that. What does happen, which is a positive thing, is you have a range of funders, uh, foundations, high net worth individuals who get and understand the need for supporting a culture of social impact and social enterprise. In many cases, what they're doing is saying, I like this market. I see that it can drive a lot of change and a lot of good, but I also accept that I can't drive returns that would be equivalent with the risk return spectrum that I just outlined to you in the conventional business world. I have to accept that there'll be some trade-off for lower returns. And as you look around the world, again, looking at the UK, Canada's generally done this pretty well. There's an interesting set of models of social enterprise hubs in the UK. Big Society Capital has a kind of affiliated organisation called Access that supplies smaller amounts of debt funding of the order of 20 to 100,000 pounds to those emerging small scale social enterprises. 
And it does so on the basis that those returns won't be commercial. And so we think in understanding that uh, that's really quite important that you drill down on the sources of capital and how to sustain that market. And there's no question to, to us of two things. One is that market's really important. Two, you're going to have to think in a different way about supporting sustainable funding, which will inevitably be a hybrid of uh, some grants some philanthropic funding and for those organisations who can support it, amounts of debt where there might be single digit type returns. So that's that market. And then you look at the later stage, one of the unique opportunities which we think exists in the Australian market is what we call the larger scale social impact investing. As you know, I was involved in the formation of Goodstart, which raised $165 million in capital to buy out of bankruptcy the old ABC childcare centres, which was the largest provider of early learning and childcare. Now, in that process, the capital deck was a hybrid of founding group of impact investors who generated a 12% return over eight years, which is a really good, I think, appropriate risk-weighted return. And on the back of that, we could raise conventional commercial debt from National Australia Bank. Now, the reason I use that as an example is that in the context of an Australian market with a $3 trillion superannuation pool, this is a low growth, low yield, low inflation environment. If you can find large scale deals that generate both reasonable financial returns at an appropriate risk and they're driving social good, that's an enormous and as yet relatively untapped opportunity. So you can see why we felt it was important to tease out those two markets. And then, then thirdly, as we, as we were talking about before, the social benefit bonds and outcome payment market we saw as being, again, a discrete one in terms of a real emphasis, particularly in partnerships with government in understanding outcome measurements and uh, the desire for capital to take risk, but for that capital to earn a reasonable return based on effective delivery of programs. And that's still a relatively nascent early stage market. But again, there are some precedents overseas as to how that's been expanded. We wanted to make sure that we were as clear as we could be in explaining the market. We've generally had a, a positive response across the board in the fact that that three market description seems to resonate to most people on two fronts. One is it's clear about what's happening in each of those areas and what good could look like. The second is there are clearly different potential issues in, in each of those. I mean, we look at this with the task forces, what's the supply and demand issues that are going on? Now, you know, at the, if I jump around a bit, we think the supply of capital in that SME social enterprise market hasn't been too bad, but one of the real issues is what uh, social enterprises tell us is what they call valley of death funding. They can get some capacity and friends and family funding, but when they get up and running, getting that next twenty-five dollars to $150,000 of soft debt funding is really hard. So how do we try and solve for that in a systemic way? And then if you move to the top end market, what we see in here is that the opportunity is a really substantial one for those bigger impact investing transactions like good stuff, but there's a lack of intermediaries or, intermediaries or originators. So how do you support the infrastructure to create those deals and those opportunities? So um, that's the framework that we felt makes sense. And as I say, we've had a pretty good response to that. Okay. And in terms of those larger deals, you know, lots of opportunities, but I just wonder drilling down a little bit more. You mentioned Good Start Early Learning, obviously childcare centres, great opportunity for scale. But what other sectors are you optimistic about in Australia that could produce similar similar deals at that, at that size? 
I think the sectors that lend themselves to that type of impacting solution are big chunks of the economy. So you think about any sector where the significant government funding with a social policy imperative, because that creates scale, but there's also a requirement for them to be run with business disciplines, with accountability and the capacity to generate decent ethical long-term revenues. So that's quite a broad suite. You think about social and affordable housing, you think about aged care, you think about the vet sector, you think about uh, areas around mental health, uh, there's a big focus around regional and rural development. These are not, you know, one and two million dollar opportunities. These are multi-billion dollar large-scale plays. And I think back to, you know, Good Start is still the largest provider of early learning and childcare. It's a billion dollar social enterprise and that's been operating for a decade. And I think most people would say that's been a success story in terms of its ability to run, be run with business disciplines for social purpose and make a decent fist out of doing both of those things. So the repeatability of that is simply a product of being very focused about where those opportunities are, bringing to the table the skills to originate those transactions and populating them with people who've got the skills at board and at senior management level to provide the depth of management around both the business and social purpose side. And Michael, preparing for this today, I had a great day reading lots of articles about the Good Start deal and how it was done. It's a really great story and, and there are some great writers that have really brought it to life. And there was something that jumped out at me. You mentioned amongst comments that, are, that I believe were from you, where you said that alignment amongst the key four members of your syndicate was a key part of it, that there was no ego and lots of humility. Do you think humility is still as important? And, and do you think the, the impact sector might be able to influence uh, broader finance to inject a bit of humility? I think it's fundamental and uh, not negotiable. And the reason I think that was so important in the case of Good Start was the number of people who, were, who would say to me, Look, the non-profit sector, and this is taking winding the clock back 20 years when I left Macquarie Bank to set up Social Ventures Australia, there were quite a few sage heads who took me aside and said, Michael, you might think you're about to join a sector which is full of love and hearts and flowers, but you'll find it's a pretty competitive dog-eat-dog world. You know, there's a lot of patch protection. And I think sadly, in part, that's true. What happened with Good Start, the four non-profits involved, each of whom were very different in their own way, Benevolent Society, New South Wales' oldest charity, the Brotherhood of uh, St. Lawrence, which is a, a venerable Victorian-based organisation with a real focus on poverty and advocacy, and Mission Australia, which was a large-growing employment service-focused business, really quite disparate and, and, and social ventures itself. But in very significant part, the four boards and the four CEOs were aligned around the idea that if we could work together and use our complementary skills, we really could do something transformational. And so I think that's really important. And I, I think it's important not to confuse humility with belief. I mean, there was a belief from all of us involved in the face of a lot of opposition and a lot of criticism that actually this was worth doing. It was worth doing properly and it could make a difference. I mean, another story I can share from those days was meeting with a, I won't identify him because a decent human being who's quite philanthropic, but I remember him fixing me with a baleful glare when we were doing the capital raise for Good Start and saying, Michael, I've done business for 40 years and I've been pretty successful at that. 
I like doing philanthropy. I struggle to do that well. He said, the idea that you think you can combine philanthropy with business and do things with business discipline and social purpose, well, good luck to your son, but you're in fantasy land. It can't happen. And so I uh, and, and the others involved in Good Start always felt, well, there's no reason if you bring integrity and humility to that conversation, you, you, you should be able to do both of those things. It can't be, it can't be that hard. And the gift of, I've just stepped down as chair of Good Start, but I've said in other quarters, it's of the many boards I've had the privileged opportunity to be involved in. That's been the most interesting, the most rewarding and the most enjoyable. And the most enjoyable because from the get-go, we had super high-quality people. You know, the foundation board included my late great friend and mentor, Robin Crawford, who was a founding director of Macquarie Bank, Greg Hutchinson, who was the managing partner of global consultancy firm Bain, Wendy McCarthy with a storied four-decade history in social advocacy and early learning and childcare and teaching, Lynn Wannan, who was an expert uh, in, in early learning and childcare. So, you know, you can see a very different, disparate group of people, but absolutely aligned around the idea that we could make a difference and equally anchored and grounded in the idea that we had a lot to learn from each other, and we did. Yeah, that's really interesting that you talk about impact investing as being a combination of the, you know, the finance world and the philanthropic world. Because I often have an internal debate, but often a very vocal debate with people about whether it is, you know, a separate entity that's brought those two things together, or whether the, the goal of it all is to try and influence broader finance to add some humility to finance, while at the same time, bringing some more commercial and sustainable business practicality to the not-for-profit sector? So sort of, I guess, two approaches. They may be the same thing, but how do you see that sort of, I guess, more philosophical issue? It's a really interesting philosophical question. So the short answer is I do think of what we're doing as a guide point to what I think of as capitalism 2.0. So what do I mean by that? My view is that long-dated, high-quality, ethical capitalism must be explicit around the social dimensions of performance. And that can be something like a good start where it's very explicit and in a sector of the economy with obvious and deep social purpose. But I flip hats and put on my private equity hat. We invested in 42 businesses over $500 million and we had a good track record. We generated pre-tax returns of over 30%. But I can think without drawing breath of the three standout businesses and they were standout because they were run by outstanding, highly principled business entrepreneurs who were deeply ethical, who really cared about what they did. They cared about the people who worked for them. They cared about the quality of service to clients. And it's no coincidence that those businesses did extremely well financially. So I've never thought there was a disalignment between long-term ethical focus on the right things and performance. And particularly in the spaces that I've mentioned, there's an obvious fusion, you know, good start um, talking about pre-COVID numbers, but our key performance indicator is occupancy. Now that had visibly improved over a period of time where I think we could say without being uh, disparaging of our private sector competitors, it had improved quite significantly relative to theirs because I think we we're doing a visibly better and more visible job of high quality service. So at a demand consumer level, that means parents are saying, I want my two, three, 
four-year-old to go to a Good Start Centre because I can see what the quality of that service is and um, I'm going to vote with my feet. So I, I think there's a much stronger alignment than people believe. Yeah. Oh, look, thank you for that, Michael. I think that's really interesting to break that down and I think that's something that maybe it's an obstacle to people kind of coming into the space. They don't quite appreciate that there is something in between philanthropy and impact and that, that it is more than just talking about purpose and that in the end, yeah, this is, this is hopefully an evolution of business and it really is the way we move forward. And going from the more esoteric to coming back a little bit more practical and back to the, the research you've been doing, I'm excited about the growth of Indigenous-led enterprises. So uh, have you seen much progress there? Is there some um, exciting organisations coming through? One of the great gifts of SVA was the opportunity to engage with some outstanding Indigenous social entrepreneurs, people like Jack Manning Bancroft, who founded the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience as a precocious and precociously talented 21-year-old. You know, if you look at the Close the Gap data, which is not a overwhelmingly impressive story, but the core completion rates, and I think significantly a product of the energy and movement that Jack's built around encouraging Indigenous students to affirm their heritage and to have a crack at school, uh, has really made a difference. People like Leah Armstrong work with SVA. Uh, she's now behind First Australians Capital, working in partnership with Adrian Apo, who was a venture partner that we got to know in the early days of SVA's work. Uh, you talk to people like Leah and Adrian, they're practical, they're wonderful advocates and reflectors of the depth of their cultural and ancestral heritage. They're also practical, smart, commercial entrepreneurs. And so I think there's an emerging generation of talent. You know, my uh, the vice chair at Good Start Early Learning, Natalie Walker, is another outstanding example of an Indigenous leader is making both a difference to the shape of the national debate, but in a really practical way is in her own right a, a successful entrepreneur, but uh, somebody with a depth of experience and understanding that contributes and somebody who contributes, you know, a great richness to the to the cultural and practical debate, you know, because there is underlying this a, a very, very challenging reality that in terms of the the extremes of exclusion and incarceration rates our Indigenous brothers and sisters are disproportionately represented. And so change at a grassroots level is needed. And as I say, I see a lot in the emerging crop of Indigenous entrepreneurs in their 20s, 30s and 40s who I think will make a profound difference to that. That's it. That's it. So much more to learn about our own country and all come together. So I'll be looking forward to that. And there's some great names there that I'll have to um, chase up and, and hopefully get on the show to dig a little bit deeper. And now you've, you've mentioned a couple of times the need for an impact investing wholesaler. And you know, you've got big society capital in the UK. And yeah, I just wonder what would that look like in Australia if we could sort of dig a little bit deeper. I think from memory, big society, it's sort of a, they take their funding from is it discarded deposits from banks and, and sort of the lottery? It's sort of excess cash that the UK government doesn't know what to do with. So they put it into a bank and they put it to good use. That might be a little bit simplistic. But yeah, what would that look like in Australia? No, no, look, I think that's a pretty good summary. So the shrunk rate version of what happened in the UK was that big society capital, again, Sir Ron Cohen was really the architect of a lot of this. Uh, he got David Cameron, who was then Prime Minister, behind it and they used a $200 million pool of funding from the Unclaimed Monies Fund 
and uh, they got uh, the banks, I think it's fair to say without being too harsh, there were a few of the banks post-GFC who were in the naughty corner. So they had four banks contribute 50 million quid each and there's your $400 million of uh, capital nut. And uh, I think BSC, we've had a range of conversations with key players involved there, has really been quite effective in providing and helping set up uh, a range of fund managers and really fulfilled that wholesaler role quite effectively. And they've done so on a basis of allocating capital, backing intermediaries and fund managers, and that organisation is now seven years old. There's a, a multiplier, if my memory serves me correctly, pretty close to two and a half to three times, as in they've deployed 250 to 300 million pounds of capital and that's leveraged other funding that's two to three times that. So there's a lot of measures that would say that's actually been a pretty wise thing to do. And when we had as part of the task force consultation process, the minister responsible for implementing that, his, his, his strong advice was, look, there was a bit of a sense that we might be overcapitalizing the sector by doing that. But he said there's just such a strong messaging having a big rock in this pond that that really gives you scale and opportunity. And it was an extraordinarily powerful in enabling things to happen, but particularly in getting really high quality people to come on board and run that because everybody knew what a serious commitment it, it was. So in the Australian context, look, we've got to be realistic. Unfortunately, that pot of money is not available in the same way. And my colleague on the task force, Sally McCutcheon, who's Chief Executive of Impact Investing Australia, they've done a huge amount of good work in looking at an Australian version of a, a BSC equivalent. So we've been able to draw on a lot of that. But that idea of coming up with smart partner funding solutions so that is something we're really interested in. And, uh, you know, without preempting the final re report, that's certainly an area where we want to be doing some more homework. Because if you do that piece, there's a lot of corollary benefits out of that. I, when, when I, uh, in response to a question before, I talked about the adjacency to big society capital of access. So access does that work in providing support for the smaller stage social entrepreneurs. And there's obviously a lot of overlap and engagement between big society capital and access and again we think in the Australian context if you can find partner pools of funding and make them available to the entrepreneurs that are emerging and support you know there's a range of really quite good quality incubators and hubs around Australia they need support so part of our challenge with the task force had on is to mobilize what we think is an enthusiastic group of foundations and philanthropists and say hey we can really work together to transform this cottage industry into the multi-billion dollar change-making industry that it can and should be. You've already been part of that. Now, we want to work with you and we want to work with government in partner funding models that will enable that to happen. And so we think the key to a lot of this, John, is that we can come up with smart partner funding solutions that liberate greater pools of capital from existing impact investors who've told us they want to be doing more and to do that in ways that encourage government to partner sensibly and effectively in enabling the kind of market growth that's been evident with a with now a two decade of history of kind of policies and actions that you can look to in the UK which we think is a pretty helpful and relevant precedent for what we want to do here. That's it. Partnering with government, I think, is what this is all about. On a simplistic view, people see impact investing as a kind of private sector version of government. But as you dig deeper, it seems that it, it instead is a partnership between all of these groups. And I guess that brings us to what your task force and what the recommendations are all about, which is 
how can the government best contribute? And, you know, you're not a government guy, you're a company guy. So I wonder from that sort of top level view, and I know I assume this is sort of what the recommendations are all about, and going just a bit further with that partnership conversation, what's that really tangible kind of point that you think the government, that the best value add of, of linking the private sector with the public? The question of the role of government's a really important one about what it's best equipped to do and what it's probably shouldn't be doing. And we talked about that in the interim task force report. And again, there's a bunch of precedents out of the UK. I mean, the headline for me is something Ron Cohen, who I've had the uh, great opportunity to spend time with over the years, you know, really rightly regarded as a global doyen in this market. And I remember Ronnie saying to me, look, Michael, government are a really critical partner as a funder and an enabler in this, but you, you don't want them to be a doer. You need to set up partnership opportunities where you can crowd in the expertise, where government helps facilitate and enable. And if they can do that in a policy and funding way, they will make a transformational difference. So you see that in practical examples, the governance structures for things like big society capital, for Bridges Community Ventures, for Go Labs, which has driven a lot of the social benefit bond and outcome fund evaluation. They're enabled and supported by government, but they're independent. They're populated by people who come from a diverse range of backgrounds across the business, social purpose and government sectors, but they're quite independent in terms of their governance and charter, and I think that's critical. And then the area where you really need to particularly be able to work closely with government, especially in that market one, which we characterise as the social benefit bond and outcome payment, being able to work with government in quantifying outcome payments and accessing data is just critical. And again, it's having the skills and the opportunity with an open mind and with the kind of integrity that's required to price these mechanisms ethically so they derive genuine benefit for taxpayer dollars, but reasonable and ethical returns when programs work for impact investors and impact investors need to take a risk. You know, I think out of the social benefit bonds, it's a, it's a good thing that not all of them work. You know, that, that you, you can, the fact that there's genuine capital risk, I actually think speaks to the integrity of what these things are about. There has to be some risk-taking element and the whole point of social benefit bonds and outcome payments is it's payment on performance. It shouldn't be payment for non-performance. So negotiating those is critically something that has to happen with government as a willing and engaged accomplice. Um, and it's not simply about just going to government with a begging bowl asking for money. I think the partnership funding models around BSC, around some of the access funding, around the support for hubs and early stage entrepreneurs, the most thoughtful partnerships are ones where there's some leverage of private philanthropic funding along with government. So it's really trying to make one equal more than two very good, very good. And before we wind up, any indications on when we can expect the final recommendations? You know, do you think you'll, you'll get there this year or something to wait for for next year? Yeah, well, look, we're, we're in discussions with the government and the department. I, I would certainly hope before the end of this year, we'd have the opportunity to uh, produce our final recommendations. And as I say, in the current context, there's ongoing discussions around core design principles and a couple of things we have discussions with government on that's very aligned with the uh, some of the key findings and line of sight contained in the interim report around how do we support intermediaries? How do we catalyze the opportunity for looking at outcome payments and scaling that? How do we establish the data linkages and data connections that are a precursor to building better metrics of performance and crowding in funding to support high quality programs that can make a visible difference? 
Very good, very good. Well, something to look forward to. And before I let you go, I have to ask you for a book recommendation. What is on the side table during the corona lockdown? Well, one of the gifts of corona is you can really wade through a lot of stuff. My all-time recommendation, and I'm a bit of a junkie for politics and particularly US political biography, there's a guy called Robert Caro who has written a beautiful forensically researched four-volume series on Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. It's just a remarkable piece of writing and research that he did over 30 years. It's beautifully written. It reads, even if you know a bit of that history, like a well-written thriller, and it's utterly compelling. And Caro is, uh, I think he's over 80 now, and um, all Caro aficionados of which I'm one are waiting for the final volume and hoping that he'll get it out soon. So I was going back and doing some reread of uh, the earlier his earlier work, which is fabulous. Thank you for that. that I think that's uh, quite a commitment to go all the way into all the volumes, but it sounds as if it's really engaging. But look, Michael, I really appreciate this today. I've barely scratched the surface of, of all the questions I've got for you and, and digging into your own career and, and how you found yourself here at the intersection of, of, of all of these uh, industries and sectors and, and helping to, to build and really push forward the growth um, of this sector that has so much potential for impact. So I'll definitely need to get you back on the show to, um, to dig a little bit deeper. But yeah, hopefully we've brought people some value with, with getting an update on the task force. No, thanks so much, John, and thanks for your time and interest. And I think it's a tremendously exciting area, as we outlined in the task force. We think there's the capacity with the kind of support that we know exists out there for there to be exponential growth in this market of social impact investing. And in the process of doing that, it can, it can make a real and transformational difference. And in this environment, that could be very helpful. Great. That's what we're all about. So, uh, yeah, let's leave it there. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, John.